This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Scott Cunningham and is from the 13th Sunday after Pentecost. So this is the second part of a two-part sermon series in which we're learning from the Bible what it means to preach Christ crucified into a crazy polarized world. And to summarize last week, for those of you who weren't here or who don't memorize every sermon, which I know most of you guys do, but for the few of you who don't, that was a joke. Uh, <laughs> you do? <laughs> really? We studied the first third of this passage uh, in 1 Corinthians 18 to 25. So it's that first chapter in this text where Paul says that the word we are to preach into a divided and polarized culture is not just Christianity, it's not just love or peace, and it's actually not even just Jesus. It's the specific, tactile, and scandalous word of the cross. It's the message of Christ crucified. And we learned that in the deep wisdom of God, that message belongs to no tribe or party. And yet, it is for every tribe and party. That it offends and challenges everybody's cultural affiliations or agendas. And yet, it is salvation for all. And finally, we talked about how for Paul and for us, that message, that word, Christ crucified, is the only thing that we can preach for our identity, our unity, and our salvation. So that is, is kind of the content of what we are to proclaim, but we can't stop there because the Bible actually doesn't either. And this has been probably the most convicting and beautiful surprise for me in wrestling with this text has been what Paul goes on to then do next. You see, I'm a, I'm a particular personality that gets kind of hot-chested pretty quickly. If the time is right, I love rolling up my sleeves and getting into a good old-fashioned, obnoxious, loud argument. Um, I get passionate about things, and you can imagine that with all of the arguments and things that are going around in the world today, I can get pretty hot-chested. And when I began to study this passage, my kind of idea of what was going to happen is I was going to get in here and understand Christ crucified, and I became so excited about the way that that word just slices through cultural authority and hypocrisy, all kinds of stuff. And as I learn more about that word, it's separate, apart from everything. It thwarts the wisdom of the world, and yet it is the power and wisdom of God. I had this real desire to just jump into the cacophony of the world, the social media space, anywhere that I could argue with anybody and just shout, hashtag Christ crucified at the top of my lungs, but just louder than everyone else and with the authority of Jesus. But, thank God, he's been very, very gracious to me because what we're going to look at today actually has completely challenged that impulse. It flips everything on its head. Honestly, God has convicted me a lot with stories of Peter this week, who was quick to pick up a sword, quick to defend Jesus, even try to protect Jesus from the cross. But this word today that we're going to hear has challenged me in a way that Jesus challenged Peter, saying, no, drop your sword. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Because here's the catch. God hasn't just designed the message of Christ crucified to be completely set apart from the wisdom and power of the world. He has actually designed the way it is proclaimed to be just as countercultural. It's not enough simply to speak the word of the cross. We have to embody the word of the cross. And therefore, 
We cannot preach Christ crucified into our polarized world if we do not preach it to ourselves, right? So this week, I just have two points. It's a very simple sermon. Be excited about it. It's just two points. Um, And they come directly from Paul's following two paragraphs. And I think if we hear these two things from, from what the Bible is trying to teach us, then we won't just be able to speak the word. We will actually be able to embody the message, that we're not just going to be able to get into the marketplace of ideas and speak Christ crucified, but we can be like Jesus in his crucifixion in the middle of the marketplace. So that's where we're headed. Um, The first point, so point number one, it comes from that second paragraph, verses 26 to 31, and it is this. You did not come to know the Lord through your wisdom or power. And I actually want us to dig into this together. So grab your Bible or your bulletin. We're going to go to verse 26, and we're going to read that paragraph one more time together. I'll give you a second. So starting in verse 26, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Okay, so again, the point from this, you did not come to know God through your power or wisdom. And let's think about Paul's logic here for a second. In that first paragraph, in verses 18 to 25, Paul sets up what we talked about last week, which is that no one can come to know God through their own power or wisdom, and that God specifically uses foolishness to thwart those in power today. And the almost comical part about this next section is that he's using the church to prove the point. So I was a part of an infamous church basketball team in middle school. And uh, it was known statewide for being the absolute worst, okay? We actually had a warm-up before a game one time where everybody lines up to do layups. You guys know what I'm talking about? No one made a single layup the entire pregame warm-up. <laughs> and then we all got together and we're like, all right, let's do this, you know. <laughs> we lost. Uh, I don't even know if we ever won. This would be like that team getting arrogant and starting to judge people's skill sets and instituting tryouts. And Paul is basically being the coach here, and he's like, this is ridiculous. You know, our team has never functioned on the basis of skill sets or tryouts. Think about you guys. You didn't even make a layup before the game, you know? That's kind of what he's doing here. The church itself is an example of how God uses foolishness and weakness to exhibit his power and wisdom. And Paul says, consider your calling. And he's not saying, consider your vocational calling or what you feel called to do. He's saying, consider who you were when God himself called you to his church. Think about yourself. And he's saying, you guys weren't important. This was not your standard, you know, kickball draft pick on the playground where all the wise and powerful kids got picked. God specifically chose all the people on the bench so that no one could boast in themselves. Just like it says in verse 30, he, that's God himself, 
is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. And therefore, nobody can boast except in the Lord. You did not come to know the Lord through your own wisdom or power. Okay, now that might seem like a duh Sunday school propositional truth, and it probably is. That may be. But it is much, much harder to accept this, to ingest it, and to remember it because we are what I like to call spiritual squatters. Let me explain what I mean by that. A perfect example of this is the people of Israel in the Old Testament. God could have swooped down and chose Egypt or Babylon. These were hardcore, you know, countries and people groups. They had pyramids and sphinxes and hanging gardens and all kinds of crazy stuff, but He didn't. He chose a family of nobody, or of nobodies from nowhere, these random guys, to be the foundation of His work on earth. And as God would continue to bless them, through their continual weakness and foolishness, they would grow into a strong people, and they got a little puffed up. So at one point in the Bible, um, God is a, or God's about to bring the people of Israel into the promised land, and Moses is standing on the River Jordan with the people before they cross over. And he has to remind them multiple times that they were not chosen because they were a wise or great nation, and that when God blesses them, it has nothing to do with their accolades. It only has to do with the love and grace of God. But when they are in the land long enough, they get proud, right? They start to look down on other nations who are not so special as them. They become very critical and judgmental of foreigners. They, after all, were the chosen people. They were given the law, the temple, the promised land. They had God on their side but they were spiritual squatters. They began to assume ownership of things they were freely given, and that proved toxic. So much so that when Jesus comes to the people of Israel and challenges that ownership, they kill Him. Now, that is our heritage. God demonstrated His power and wisdom through the weakness and foolishness of Israel in order to save the world. And in the new covenant under Christ, it is no different, and yes, we are just as prone and vulnerable to spiritual squatting. For Israel, it may have been their ethnic or national inheritance that was the issue, you know, land, a people, and all that kind of stuff, but it is just as toxic if we assume ownership over the spiritual inheritance of what has been freely given to us. I've heard Stuart say before that we're spiritual trust fund babies and that we inherit these things freely. This is Paul playing the part of Moses by the River Jordan for us, the church. He's saying, be careful. You did not come to know the Lord through your own power or wisdom. So let's turn the sting of this back on ourselves for a second. How does this affect us in a a polarized age and engaging with the world and living in 2016 in America? If we remember how God saved us and consider ourselves, as Paul says, It should absolutely defang us as we engage with the world and enter into the marketplace of ideas. It also eliminates any opportunity for self-righteousness or arrogance or pride that we are on the side of the cross. We cannot boast in ourselves. We have no inherent right to be on the side of Christ crucified, and that's countercultural. The emphasis then shifts from us to the message. The Bible says elsewhere, I love this, 
what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for His sake. If you think about it, nobody ever gets up for a political stump speech or in front of the mic at a protest and says, I just want everybody to be really clear about one thing. I don't deserve to be on this stage. Nothing I've done qualifies me for it. Only grace and love is the reason I'm here. In all your eyes, I'm foolish and weak. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> right? We work to make hard, you know, to, to make sure that people know that we have pedigrees, that we've been fighting for years and we've done everything right and we're supposed to be there. And when that's happening on all sides, it fosters serious judgment and trench warfare, and we all know that too well. The cross does not allow that. Consider yourselves, Paul says. Consider who you were when God called you. Consider the nature of your calling. To help them remember who the people of Israel were, God literally set up an entire religious system to help remind the Israelites about who they were and what God did, to weekly, yearly, every 50 years, dislodge them from spiritual squatting. And every week we are to do the same. That's what's so beautiful about worshiping together. We do not presume to come to the Lord's table or into His presence trusting in our own righteousness. We were slaves, amen? We were in darkness. It is God alone who is the source of our life in Christ Jesus. Nobody can boast. So when we go on to Facebook and we are presented with a smorgasbord of ridiculousness or we are at the dinner table and the arguments start getting heated, we got to remember this. We have no reason to look down on others or exhibit any kind of self-righteousness. If anything, it should instill a deep wellspring of humility, empathy, and that's for all sides and all peoples. We didn't come to know the Lord. He came to know us. It is with that sentiment that we step out into a polarized world with the message of Christ crucified. So that's the first point. You did not come to know the Lord through your own power or wisdom. The second one is a real shocker, and it's this. The world is not going to come to know the Lord through your power or wisdom. So grab your bulletin again, and let's read that, that third paragraph. We're going to start in chapter 2, verse 1. I'll give you a second to get there. So Paul says in verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Again, the point here is the world is not going to come to know the Lord through your power or wisdom. In that previous paragraph, Paul uses the church as an example to prove his point, but now he uses himself. It's pretty cool, actually. He's saying, listen, guys, you didn't come to know the Lord through your own wisdom or power, and it certainly was not because of my wisdom or power either. See, Paul knew two things. First, he knew what we talked about last week, that the word of the cross is the only thing which can be our identity, our unity, and our salvation in this world. He says in 1 Corinthians 3.11, 
No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. And he knew as a minister of Jesus, if he tried to lay a foundation of anything other than that, it would just crumble. But on the other hand, he knew a second thing, and that is this, that it's very possible, maybe even easier, to try and draw people to God on the basis of a false foundation. You see, the people in Corinth were surrounded by really great leaders and rhetoricians and all kinds of stuff, and everybody had their favorites, and it actually really divided the church. So people were coming to church on the basis of those things. And so the house of their faith, if you will, wasn't being built on the foundation of Christ crucified, but on human wisdom and, you know, the, the charismatic gymnastics of leaders who were really good at putting on a show. And if you think about it, there are a lot of foundations being laid today. For every political party, for every hashtag, for every movement, if you get down to their core, the movement is built on a foundation undeniable doctrines that the, the party or whatever upholds. Politicians run on a platform, right? In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, there is this beautiful and terrifying passage, and Paul talks about how everybody's work, every house built on every foundation, will one day be tested. He says in chapter 3, verse 13, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And the Bible goes on to say that whatever is not built on the foundation of the word of the cross in Christ crucified will vanish like hay in a bonfire. But what has been built on the foundation of Christ crucified will be purified and refined like gold. Paul wants to lay the foundation of Christ crucified so he just avoids the wisdom dance. That, what, that's what he's saying here because he knows that people aren't going to come to know the Lord because of his wisdom. And so he comes in weakness with the message of Christ crucified and demonstrating the power of the Spirit. So what does it mean for us today in this crazy polarized world which has so many platforms, so many leaders, all kinds of stuff? If we truly believe that the world will not come to know the Lord through our wisdom, power, or coolness, it should revolutionize the way we engage with our culture. I really do believe that. On the one hand, it certainly should eliminate, you know, drive-by tweetings of malice and shouting matches and stuff like that. But, but on the other hand, it should remove any burden of feeling like we aren't wise enough or good enough at theology or evangelism or whatever to engage with the world. God is saying He specifically chooses people who are weak and foolish in the world's eyes to be the bearers of the word of the cross and the power of the Spirit? It's pretty cool. Think about the parable of the sower for a second. We read it this morning. We should neither come away from that parable thinking, man, I've got to work at being the right soil, or I've got to work at trying to identify in the world where the right soil is. You know, Jesus doesn't say when his disciples ask him to explain the parable, well, the first sower got up and he was all right. He threw a few, they were pretty good, but they landed on pretty bad soil. But then the second sower got up and man, whew, you've never seen somebody throw a, a fastball so like that, man. He just nailed it. Of course not. The point is, sow seed. Sow it abundantly all the time and everywhere. Because you know the power is not in the quality of your sowing, but in the seed itself and everything else is in the hand of God. 
And there's a little second parable that we read too, and that it's the same thing in there. This guy sows seed, and he goes to sleep, and he gets up, and man, it's growing. And there's a harvest, and it says he knows not how. God loves to work in ways that make that point clear. That's a part of what Paul's getting at, I think. It's making, making sure you're not, you're not putting your faith in the sower of the seed. It's the power of the seed and the power of God himself. Let me give you an example of this. My grandma had an amazing evangelistic gift, but it wasn't because she was shrewd or super wise. It was because she was full of faith and very bold. She sowed seed everywhere and all the time. And at her funeral this past year, the greatest hits of those stories started coming up, and I'll tell you one of my favorites. As my dad tells the story, they're at a Houston Astros baseball game, sitting in the stands, and my grandma's on the end, sitting next to this good old boy who's, you know, double-fisting Bud Lights and eating hot dogs and just there to have a good time. And my sweet, precious grandma, of course, asked him if he wants to hear about Jesus, and apparently he was livid and said, absolutely not. (laughs) But she persisted. And he persisted in telling her that he did not want to hear about Jesus until she got to the end, you know, to the hook, line, and sinker and said, do you want to repent and believe in the gospel and know Jesus? And he said, absolutely not. (laughs) Be quiet, woman, you know. But then she was tapped on the shoulder and she turned around and there was a guy with tears streaming down his face just chiming in in the middle of a major league baseball game, and he said, I would. If you think about what's happening in that scenario, that's the power of God, and that's the wisdom of God. So the first point is you did not come to know the Lord through your power wisdom. The second is the world is not going to come to know the Lord through our power wisdom. If we truly consider those things continually as God's word to us, then they will do the holy work of freeing us from arrogance, from false foundations, and from spiritual squatting, especially in a world that is magnetically so attuned to try to get to suck you into movements and leaders and any other type of powers. And we'll begin to not boast in ourselves, but in the Lord. And when we truly take those things to heart, we will begin to to be what the Bible calls, and I love this, the aroma of Christ. It's not just going to be our words. We will spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. And what is the fragrance of the cross? What does it look like? What does the cross feel like? It looks like weakness. It looks like foolishness. It looks like death to the world because that is exactly what it is. I said at the beginning of this sermon that God hasn't just designed the message of Christ crucified to be completely set apart. He has actually designed the way it is proclaimed to be just as countercultural. That it's not just enough to simply speak the word of the cross, we have to embody it. To embody the cross, therefore, means to embody weakness and foolishness and death. It means not just to speak the word but to do what Jesus did and Paul did after him and so many other disciples have done, which is to step into the middle of our polarized world in weakness and trembling so that the mighty power and wisdom of God can work through you and in you. It means to fall to the ground like a seed and die so that in new life we might bear much fruit in the gospel, or like our liturgy said today, that we might receive the fruits of Christ's redeeming work. Love that. We are meant to serve all 
tribes and all parties. Jesus died for His polarized world, of which we are included, and He calls us to do the same. A huge part of that, I think, is prayer, which is going to be us clearly depending on God and not ourselves as we step in and engage and continue to sow seeds. There's a way to preach Christ crucified that can be done in the, in the form of power and wisdom. It's true. That's like Peter picking up his sword. That's like me wanting to just run everywhere and yell hashtag Christ crucified. When we do that, we embody snarkiness and arrogance at best and cold-blooded religiosity at worst. But God works through weakness. I, I just love that image of Jesus telling Peter to put his sword down. You're not, you're not setting your mind on the things of God. You're wanting to do this in a way that is human. But God works through weakness and foolishness, specifically. It's a beautiful thing. What would happen this week if when you're with your coworkers at lunch, or you are doing lawn work and you have that conversation with your neighbor, and inevitably, everything that's going on in our world today comes up, what would happen if they were confronted with the fragrance of the cross instead of the usual fare? If when you begin to, to speak, they didn't hear or see fangs or violent bias, but were confronted with deep humility and empathy on the one hand, and on the other, that out of that deep humility and empathy, they saw that you bore a better word than anything the world has to offer. What would happen instead of despairing and arguing over the state of our world, we began picking up our own crosses and sowing the seeds of Christ crucified and dying for the sake of the world? Like I said last week, we can still engage in the issues of today. But in, what, in many ways, I think the challenge of this passage is a challenge to do some serious heart work in the way that we see ourselves, in the way that we see the world, and that when we do that, that's going to affect and change not just what we speak in the message of Christ crucified, it'll change who we are, how we speak. If you're not a, a, a Christian and you're here today visiting, we're so excited that you're here. I'm so excited that you're here. Come up and talk to me if you have any questions about this stuff. But I know for me, sometimes when I'm in different contexts, it's easy to feel a little bit overwhelmed. Like you come in here and there's all these religious people and we know when to do things and all that kind of stuff. Um, the cross is for you. And be encouraged. Nobody in this room has any claim to be on the, on the side of the cross. It is all God. There are two things that are very clear from this passage. On the one hand, we don't save ourselves. We don't save the world. On the other hand, God does, is willing, able, and is in the process of saving the world. Amen? The cross is for you. So this morning, if, if you're hearing this, God loves to answer the prayer of growing seeds. He is the one who grows, and He can in you. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've come from or what you've done. God is willing and able and is saving us and the world. Our polarized and fragmented world needs the cross. We need the cross. We need the message of Christ crucified. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 
In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.